remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Galatians 4. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to know more what it means to be your children, your sons. And to know, Father, that you are our Father. Help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to know who you are and what you have done for us in history. We need your help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, today is Trinity Sunday, so we'll spend our sermon time reflecting on our triune God and His mighty acts. What have they, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what have they been doing for all eternity? What have they been doing in history? We're going to explore those questions and other questions this Sunday and next and today, I'm going to try to combine the themes of Trinity, um, fatherhood, especially divine fatherhood, focusing on our Father in heaven, and also baptism. Since we had some baptisms today, we'll be reflecting on how baptism relates to the Trinity. After all, baptism is a Trinitarian baptism. Well, let's start by talking about the word Trinity. Trinity. It means unity of three. Tri means three, and unity means oneness, union. The Trinity is one God, one being, who is God, in three persons. And it's important that we don't emphasize the oneness of the Trinity over the threeness of the Trinity, or vice versa. The oneness of God is not more, more important or more fundamental than the threeness. The oneness did not come first. The threeness did not come first. Our God is three and our God is one. And both of those statements are true in the ultimate sense. 
As one theologian put it, the threeness of God and the oneness of God are equally ultimate. The Trinity is three in one and one in three. And there's a mystery here that we'll never be able to get to the bottom of. After a trillion years in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, we will still not have our minds wrapped around the mystery of the nature of our triune God. Now, many of you probably welcome this sort of theological reflection on the Trinity. Maybe you like reading books on this, and that's great. You ought to. But maybe for some of you, when you hear the word Trinity, it just makes you think of dry, dusty doctrine. Or maybe it brings to mind the fights that you've heard about in the early church as our fathers in the faith were hammering out the doctrine of the Trinity, trying to get it right. Maybe some of you are doubtful about whether the Trinitarian formulations in the creeds or that you've heard over the years in your life, whether they have anything to do with reality or with what we can actually find in the pages of Holy Scripture. Is the doctrine of the Trinity just something that theologians and philosophers concocted to keep them busy and to keep us confused? Others have decided that even if the doctrine of the Trinity is true and biblical and necessary, it doesn't seem very practical. What difference does Trinitarian truth make for my life? The tragedy of thinking of the Trinity in these ways is that the Trinity is the most personal and the most practical reality there is. The word Trinity shouldn't make you think about church councils and dusty dogmas only. It should bring to mind words like love and life and joy and community and personal relationship and gospel. One of the things Paul teaches us in the text from Galatians 4, especially in verses 4 to 7 there, is that the gospel is the Trinity. The Trinity is the gospel. Without the Trinity, without the fellowship and work of the three persons of the Godhead, without the harmonious activity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in history, in humanity, there would be no Gospel. There could be no Gospel. No good news for mankind. Of course, at the center of the Gospel is the cross of Christ. The cross of the Son. The cross of the second person of the Trinity. But the cross fits into a larger Gospel story that includes all three persons of the Godhead. The bedrock upon which the cross rests is the Trinitarian God of reality who is revealed to us in Scripture 
as God the Father, God the Son, who is the Son of the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Son of the Father. One God in three persons. Three persons in one God. So all of this means that you should not, you should absolutely not approach the Trinity as a math problem or as a philosophical riddle. Unfortunately, that's as far as many get in their experience with the Trinity. But, but the Trinity is not a puzzle to get to the bottom of. They are persons to get to know. Now, if we're going to know the triune God personally, it will be helpful to know some basic things about how the three persons relate to one another. Thankfully, the Bible is not silent on this. So we're not left guessing. And thankfully, our fathers in the faith have helped us to formulate biblical formulations of the Trinitarian Godhead. And we can't plumb the depths of all the Trinitarian mysteries. We must go into it knowing that. But we can reach some conclusions. And we can draw some boundaries that will be helpful for us as we get to know and serve and love our triune God. So what do we mean when we say that God is a trinity, a tri-unity? We mean and we confess, we do it every week, that the one true living God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we can unpack that a little bit. We confess that God exists in community. An eternal community of three eternal and equal persons who have related to one another in perfect love and in perfect unity for all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being, one essence, one God, but three persons. And we also need to remember that the oneness of God, the the divinity of God, that oneness is not a separate thing so that there are actually four things. So it's not that we have three persons and then this fourth thing which is the oneness or the being of God. No. The three persons are one God and their divinity is their mode of existence. We don't just find our triune God in the New Testament either. We find traces of the Trinity throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The story of the Bible is a Trinitarian story. It's not as if the story of the Old Testament is a story of a one-person God, and then we get to the New Testament, and, and then God becomes Trinitarian or something like that. Let me illustrate this just with one example from the Old Testament. In creation, we'll start with the very first chapter. In creation, the Father spoke the world into existence. The Father was the speaker. He spoke everything into being. And the Son, we learn from the rest of Scripture, is is the Word spoken. The Word spoken by the Father. And the Holy Spirit was the holy breath. Remember, Spirit just means wind or breath. 
in both the Hebrew and in the Greek. He was the holy breath that was breathed out along with the word. When we speak, we speak words and we have breath come out at the same time alongside our words. So in creation, the Father is speaking the word and breathing the Holy Spirit. And the result is the creation of all things out of nothing. It's not like they had material there that they were working with. It was God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creating everything from nothing. The first two verses of the Bible refer to the activity of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit very explicitly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The term God generally refers to God the Father throughout Scripture. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. But we know that the Son was also there. We read about it in Proverbs 8, by the way. He was the Father's spoken word, and we're taught this more explicitly than we are in Proverbs 8, in John 1, which says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was with God in Genesis 1.1. Even though he's not mentioned explicitly in Genesis 1.1. And the word was God, John says. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in creation. John goes on to say that without the Son, nothing was made that was made. So all three persons were in the beginning... The Father spoke everything into existence. The Son was the Father's spoken word. And the Spirit was God's breath. All the members of the Trinity are also at work in our redemption. Hebrews 9.14 says that the blood of Christ, that's the blood of the Son, the second person of the Godhead, purifies us because it is offered to God the Father through the eternal Spirit. Your salvation is not the work of one or even two of the persons of the Godhead. All three persons of the Trinity are actively and intimately involved in the process of saving you and sanctifying you and bringing you to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The last part of our passage from Galatians 4 lays out our Trinitarian redemption beautifully. In verses 4 to 6, especially verses 4 to 7, they tell the story of God the Father sending God the Son and then sending God the Spirit. First, the Father sent the Son to redeem you from the curse that you were under. The curse that all humanity was under. But then the Father also sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, Paul says. And there in your heart, the Holy Spirit is crying out, pointing back to the Father, Abba, Father. And all of this Trinitarian work and movement result in your adoption by the Father. Because of this work, you have a new Father, a Heavenly Father. 
Because the Father sent His Son to die for you, because the Father sent the Holy Spirit into your heart, you have been saved from your sins and reunited to God, having been separated him from Him because of your sin. And now you are a son of God, Paul says. And as His Son, you have a full inheritance. That's the Trinitarian Gospel that Paul is describing in Galatians 4. 4-7. to seven. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that the Trinity is good news, and without the Trinity, there could be no good news. It's, it's not just that the Gospel is a Trinitarian Gospel, that it just kind of happens to be Trinitarian. That's how it just happens to be. That's how we see it. No, it had to be that way. The Trinity is the good news. The nature of the Trinity is the good news. It's not just that it happened to take a Trinitarian shape in history. The truth is that the Gospel had no choice but to be Trinitarian because the good news is that God is God. The good news is that God is who He is. And He has been for all eternity. The good news is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we need to unpack this. What does it mean to say that the Trinity is the Gospel and without the Trinity there could be no Gospel, no good news? Well, let's, let's think through this together. Let's do a thought experiment together. For there to be good news, there must be a God of love, right? If the Gospel that Paul describes in Galatians 4 really exists... And by that, I mean that we can be redeemed from the, from the curse, from our sin. If that's possible, there must be a God of love. Specifically, there must be a God whose very nature, whose very essence is to love others. Not just Himself, but primarily to love others. The good news at its, at its heart is that God was compelled to, by love, to rescue people from sin and hell. It it certainly wasn't anything in us that compelled Him to save us. He was compelled by a love that is deeper than we can understand and that we cannot explain, that we cannot fully account for in our finite minds. For there to be a Gospel, there must be a God of this kind of love who loved the world so much that he did something about the sin problem. 1 John 4.8 says, God is love. Not just God is loving, but God Himself in His very being is eternally and in history love. It's in His eternal nature to love others. You can't have a Gospel. There is no good news without a God whose essence is to love others. But you see, For God to be a God of love toward others, He must exist in community. If the one true living God were just one person, not a community of persons, if He were just one person, He wouldn't be a God whose very essence is to love others. He couldn't have been. 
If the eternal God were just one person, we wouldn't be able to say that He is love. It wouldn't be a part of His eternal nature. Who would He have been loving for all eternity? There was no one else to love before He created something besides Himself. A one-person God could not have expressed love to others, for others, before the foundation of the world. Before creation, there would have been no one for this one-person God to give Himself to. No one to enjoy fellowship with. No one to share a friendship with. No one to communicate with. Such a one-person God would not be, could not be, the essence of love. We couldn't say that God is love with integrity because there would have been a time in eternity, if we can call eternity a time, when He was not love. Ultimately, such a God would be, in the nature of the case, a self-centered being. His nature would be bent in on itself. He would have loved Himself and only Himself for all eternity. So this would just be His way of life. If you and I were created by such a God, we would not feel the pleasure of His self-giving love toward us the way we can with our Trinitarian God because such self-giving love would not be part of this God's character and essence. Martin Luther said that being a sinner means being curved in on yourself. Sin is spiritual scoliosis. Sinners are curved in. They're bent inward. They're centered on themselves. And when God saves us, He straightens us out and makes us outward focused. But what do you do if your God has been curved in on Himself from eternity past? What, if you, what do you do if your God is not a community of persons who have been dwelling in perfect love and unity for all eternity? Such a one-person God might be predisposed to, cosmic, to being a cosmic bully or a divine tyrant, much like the God of Islam. Or he might be inclined to be a legalistic God, much like the God of Judaism. These gods, of course, are made in man's image. Or he may prefer to remain aloof from his creation, keeping his distance from everything that he made, not wishing to get involved, much like the impersonal deity of deism. But not one of these one-person gods could ever offer any good news. And you'll notice that they haven't yet. Because none of these one-person gods could ever truly be a god of love. Self-giving love would not be intrinsic to who He is. So if God were only one person, we would be forced to conclude that there is no Gospel and there can be no Gospel. No Gospel because there's no God whose eternal nature compels Him to do what Paul describes in Galatians 4, 4-7. Now let's compare the one-person gods of Islam Judaism, deism, to the three-person God of Scripture. 
what does it mean that God is a trinity? It means that God has been others-centered for all eternity. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were giving themselves to one another in relationships of pure and perfect love. God has existed as a community of self-giving love since before the creation. In fact, creation is the overflow of the eternal love that is God. Creation is the result of the, the, it's, it's the bubbling over and the spilling out of the infinite love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Creation was an opportunity for the three persons of the Trinity to express their love. To express it to one another and and express it toward us. To share that love that they have for one another with someone, something outside of themselves. With creation. Especially with mankind. You see, our salvation from sin, the good news, is also the overflow of Trinitarian love. In creation and in redemption, it's the result of God's overflowing love. The act of saving you was an opportunity for Father, Son, and Spirit to express their love for one another and to share their love with you at the same time. So when we say God is love, we're saying that God is Trinity. Trinity is, is shorthand for God is love. Trinity means God of love, of eternal love. To affirm that God is love is to affirm the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, the God of reality, the God of eternity, the God who acts in history. And because this God exists, because the Trinity is true, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are real, eternal persons who are more, more personal even than we are, there is such a thing as eternal love. Therefore, there is such a thing as good news for fallen humanity. The good news is that the three persons of God who have been enjoying and delighting in one another for all eternity, decided that they wanted to delight in you and enjoy you for the rest of eternity. And they didn't change their mind on this decision even after we plunged ourselves into sin. Even though you fall short and I fall short of the glory of God. Their love drove them to do something about your condition which would have been hopeless apart from their love. And so the Father sent the Son to take your sin, to die your death. And then He sent the Spirit of the Son, the Holy Spirit, into your heart to seal your adoption as His Son, or we can say His daughter. The Holy Spirit's love for the Son, His bond of love with the Son is so strong that He is called the Spirit of the Son. This is not saying that the Holy Spirit is just the Son's soul or the Son's Spirit. He's a separate person, but He does the work of the Son. 
He points back to the Son. He unites us to the Son. He is the Spirit of the Son. And the same Spirit also expresses His love for the Son and the Father and His love for you at the same time by coming into your heart and uniting you to the Son, to the Father, and by crying out from within your heart, Abba, Father. Has there ever been news better than this? I want us to be a church whose members know and experience and delight in the Trinity. My desire is that you, when you hear the word God, Trinitarian thoughts fill your mind. No more thinking of God in the abstract. No more thinking of God as a vague force or big, powerful, impersonal deity. No more thinking about the Trinity as dusty dogma or as an impractical puzzle or as an academic exercise. Start thinking of the Trinity in concrete, relational terms as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And cultivate a personal relationship with each of the three persons of God. If you're a Christian, then the God you worship, the God that you pray to and serve, the God who created you and redeemed you is a trinity, a tri-unity, a community of eternal persons who share a divine essence. So you should think of your God as a trinity. And you should get to know your God as a trinity. All three persons know you and love you. All three persons saved you, rescued you from sin. You will spend eternity with all three persons. If you abide in Christ, you are abiding in the Trinity. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and build on the foundation that I've tried to lay today. We'll look at some more Scripture and we'll discuss, discuss several of the implications of the Trinitarian Gospel. We'll ask, how should the doctrine and the reality of the Trinity shape your prayers, shape your suffering, your mission to the world, your love for one another? Those sorts of things. We'll explore these questions and more next week. But in closing today, I just want to discuss briefly what the Trinity means for your life in the church as a baptized Christian, as a baptized son of God, child of God. Our church life together at Christ the King Church should be modeled on the unity and the diversity of the Trinity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that there is one body and many members of that body. That's the church body he's talking about. There's one Spirit, but there's a diversity of gifts given to the church by that Spirit. Like the Trinity, we are many, but we share a common life. As I've watched this church grow over the years, it struck me how much more diverse we are today than we were 15 years ago. 
when we began. And of course, that's just natural. That's naturally what happens as any church grows. But we're not nearly as homogenous as we were back then. And overall, that's a good thing, though it does come with challenges, of course. Our diversity has had a sanctifying and maturing effect on us. Living alongside people who don't think exactly like you has a way of sharpening you and knocking off the rough edges. I need that from you. And you need that from me. God created His church just as He created His humanity in the very beginning in His own image. He did it for His glory and for His good. Now to say that the church is trinity-shaped, that it's a trinity-shaped community, doesn't mean that there's a perfect analogy, one. And two, it doesn't give anyone the right to be a busybody or a meddlesome intruder into other people's lives. But it does obligate all of us to care for one another and to allow ourselves to be cared for by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Today we got to witness the baptism of four of our covenant children. The New Testament makes it clear that we enter the church family through baptism in the name of the triune God. The baptismal formula in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which I say every week at the end of the service, this baptismal formula is the single most explicit Trinitarian statement in the whole Bible. Jesus explicitly tells us to baptize in the triune name, indicating that there are three persons. Baptism is important because it is the objective sign to you and to others that all the Trinitarian promises in Scripture belong to you. And they're true for you. If you've been baptized, you can claim them. And you should claim them and live in terms of them. Baptism is your reminder that the Trinitarian salvation that Paul outlines in Galatians 4, 4-7 has come to you. Your baptism is God's public declaration that you belong to the Trinity and the Trinity belongs to you. In baptism, you come to own the Gospel and the Trinity for yourself in a particular and personal way. What does Trinitarian baptism do? It unites you to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It makes you a new you. It gives you a new identity. Baptism is not when God gives you faith and new life from the dead. Maybe it can be. But that mysterious act of God when He gives faith happens before baptism. It happens to our covenant children in the womb. The Psalms make that very clear. We baptize our children because God has told us, has promised us that they belong to Him. And that He has given them some kind of covenantal relationship with Him. He has given them faith, the Psalms say, that must be nurtured and 
disciples. And Jesus confirmed this truth that we find in the Psalms, in the Gospels. And the New Testament says that the first thing you do when you start to nurture and disciple someone is you get them baptized. This is true for an adult convert. It's true for a covenant child. We make disciples, Jesus says very clearly, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then by teaching them to observe everything Jesus commanded. In that order, Jesus put the order the way He wanted it. Surely the discipleship program that Jesus laid out in the Great Commission includes our children. So baptism is not when God gives faith. That happens before baptism. We are saved by faith, the faith that God gives to us and our children before we are baptized. Now, of course, we have to, we have to realize that sometimes that faith turns out to be the temporary faith that we find in the parable of the sower. Some of the faith that they have is not persevering faith. It's temporary faith. And sometimes the faith of a baptized person, whether it's an adult or a covenant child, sadly, is, turns out to be temporary faith. Some people decide to make a shipwreck of their faith. They don't make good on their baptism. But this doesn't change the fact that faith precedes baptism and that we should baptize those that we believe from the Word of God or by confession of faith have faith in Jesus. We baptize a person because we believe that he or she has some kind of relationship with God through faith. And baptism is the first step in nurturing that faith. But even though faith precedes baptism, the New Testament makes it clear that your baptism is nonetheless the ritual by which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit publicly claim you as their own. If you've been baptized, your identity and destiny are no longer tied absolutely to your family of origins or your national citizenship. Baptism is the watery tomb of the old you and the watery womb of the new you. In baptism, you have been brought into a new family, a new community, the triune family, which is ultimately an eternal family. You have a new father, a new elder brother in Jesus, and a new close companion in the Holy Spirit. Baptism is your new beginning. Just as a marriage ceremony is a couple's new beginning. Now, the marriage ceremony is not when a couple begins to love each other. It's not when they first commit themselves to each other even. Nevertheless, it is the beginning of a new life. A new public identity. A new network of relationships. And new privileges mainly they can come you can come to the table in a similar way the trinitarian baptism was your entry into a new life a new public identity a new network of relationships and new privileges membership in a body 
right before Paul sketches the Trinitarian Gospel in our passage from Galatians 4, he says back in Galatians 3.27, you can look up there at verse 3, uh, verse 27 of chapter 3, that everyone who has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. So when you were baptized, you put on Christ. You put on that new public identity. You began your new life. You entered into a new network of relationships. You came to the table of the Lord for the first time after you were baptized. And when you put on Christ, you put on the entire Trinity. You you can't get part of God without getting all of God. In baptism, you put on God, we can say. And now your daily duty as a Christian is to keep putting Him on. To keep putting off the old man, as Paul says, and putting on the new. Off with the old man and on with the new man every day. Here's what the book of Common Prayer says to the person who has just been baptized. May you live your whole life according to the good beginning made in baptism. The whole Christian life is a participation in the life of the Trinity. In union with Jesus, you have all the same privileges and rights that He has. By the Spirit, you have the same access to the Father as Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 2.18 that through the Son, you have access in one Spirit to the Father. The Trinity is all over the place in the New Testament. You were once orphans, but you have been made heirs of God in Christ through His Spirit. Life in the church is a privileged life. It is communion with the Trinity and communion with those who belong to the Trinity. Life as God's Son comes with privileges and a great inheritance. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no, you are no longer a slave. No longer a slave to sin. No longer a slave to the elements of the old world. But a son. A son of the new creation. And if a son than an heir of God through Christ. Let's thank God for His promises. Thank You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for sweeping us up into Your eternal love. Your eternal community. For putting Your name on us in baptism. For not being ashamed to call us Your sons and Your brothers. And we ask for Your help by the power of the Spirit working in us, living in our hearts to walk as true sons with true faith that perseveres to the end. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.